chapter 2, this morning looking at verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read that section beginning at verse 13. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that, as, uh, that he was reclining at table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray. Father, indeed, as, as we have just sung, the, the scriptures tell us, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is not a suggestion, it is command. That if we would boast, it would be in, in you. And so we would glory in you, we would exalt you, we would look to you for all things. And so we ask that you would teach us, you would help us to understand these things. Help us as we endeavor to do, as we look at Mark and his teaching we ask that we would see Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. amen. We have somewhat of an idyllic little passage here in, in Mark. It says, he went again, out again by the seashore. And there are those who say this was perhaps something that Jesus enjoyed doing. We've already seen in chapter 1 that Jesus was walking by the sea when he met Simon and Andrew and James and John. And here he's out by the seashore again, and he's about to send a shockwave through public opinion. The multitudes are following him, they're coming to him, and he was teaching them. We see that he has not gone away from his ministry. He's teaching them and, and preaching to them about the kingdom of God. And yet, he's teaching them much more by the actions and just a couple of words to one man that he happens to pass by as they're out by the sea. He says to Levi, follow me. Apparently, some time has passed since he healed the paralytic. We don't know how long it was. But Jesus is back by the Sea of Galilee teaching, and apparently it has gone on for some time that he's been doing this activity and the crowds coming to him. And it was a good place for teaching out by the seashore. There was plenty of area for people to follow him. And there was, as we learn through this story, there was a reason why there was a tax office nearby because it was a place of travel. There was much traffic going by. Capernaum was in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a road, what was called the Great Western Road, coming from the province of Damascus across 
the top of the Sea of Galilee, through the area of Capernaum, uh, caravans and travelers on their way to the Mediterranean. And so there was much commerce east-west, and there was also nearby a caravan, a northern road that came from Jerusalem and going to the northern regions of Galilee. So this was a good area for a preacher. This was a good area for people to gather and to, to find him. And while they were going on, Mark's language here, he, he's again giving us that, that kind of that dynamic action. While they were going on, he spotted Levi in his tax office there. I, I think it's Wycliffe who first coined the, the term for this, this office as a, as a toll booth. And I, I think that was probably a pretty accurate thing. Here's Levi sitting in the toll booth or some kind of little hut or shed counting or collecting taxes and fees. And he just very casually looks in. I can imagine him kind of going up to the window and just says, follow me. But those around him would have been shocked by this action. And what was to follow, perhaps days or weeks after, Jesus went to Levi's house for a banquet. Now I think it's important that we understand some of the backgrounds, I guess the modern language is the backstory. From the time that the Romans conquered Judea, and I, my history book told me it was about uh, 69 BC when Pompey invaded this, this region, the, the Romans controlled the government in this region of Judea, and by decree of the Caesars, there would be the taxes. And I understand originally, it's almost like a pyramid kind of tax. The Roman government appointed knights, Roman knights, to be the collectors of these taxes. But they would farm out the collecting to others who would then farm it out to others in different regions and localities. And so you had this kind of pyramid structure where people were collecting taxes, and as the taxes were passed along, everybody kind of took his cut until it got to Rome, or to, in this case, the, the uh, tetrarch of the region of the government. But a change was made by Caesar Augustus. Yes, that Caesar Augustus, who was the one who decreed when he, uh, we know from the, the Gospels, decreed that a census be taken, and that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because his parents had to go there to register. That same Caesar Augustus, sometime in his reign, um, which went to about um, A.D. 14, he decreed that the taxes would be collected by the provinces, people within the provinces. In other words, Jews. They would be elected by their fellows, and they would be the ones who would be the tax collectors. And I think it's very important that we see that the people that we're talking about here, the tax gatherers, the publicans, were now, at this time, they were their fellow men. They were people just like them. And so they were appointed 
in two different groups to collect taxes that would be paid directly to the government under, at this time, Herod Antipas, or Antipas, who was sometimes called in the New Testament a king, but he was not a king, he was a tetrarch, over one-fourth of the territory. And we know, just by reading a casual reading of the New Testament, we know that most people despise these publicans. And we know that many of them enrich themselves either by adding to the taxes, collecting more tax than was owed, or I understand from the writings of uh, Alfred Edersheim that some of the publicans decided to invent their own taxes. There were two classes. There were the tax gatherers and the customs officials. The tax gatherers collected regular dues, of which there were three. There was the ground tax, or the tax that you paid on the things that you grew, grain, fruit, those kinds of things. There was an income tax that could be paid in out of what you made or out of cash. Or there was, and then there was the head tax or the poll tax. Anyone, uh, any female greater than, uh, older than 12 years old or a male older than 14, they all owed, owed the head tax. So they collected these general taxes. Levi was of the other class. Levi was of the class that was even more hated than the tax gatherers. He was of the class of the custom house officials. They levied taxes on imports and exports, all things that were bought and sold. If you crossed a bridge, you generally owed a toll. If you used a road, you would owe money. If you were a pedestrian, you owed one fee. If you had a cart, they taxed you. And some of you have been over bridges like this. If you have one axle on your cart, you owe one fee. If you have more axles, you're going to owe more. They had harbor dues for the ship's pilots who docked from the Sea of Galilee. They had admission fees to markets. And they had licenses if you were going to own a boat or pilot a boat. They taxed you on the number of pack animals you had. They, I mean, you, you thought TSA was bad. The customs officials had authority to stop people on their journey at any time, ask them to unload their pack animals, spill out the contents of their packages and their bales, and they would pick through them and decide which things that we're going to tax. If you had personal correspondence in there, they were allowed to read it. Many in Judea chafed under the, un, the lawfully paying of the tributes. One, because it was a tribute to Caesar, the heathen ruler. But they were most vexed by those who taxed them who collected taxes from among them, who were uh, their own people. Edersheim writes this as a comment on what they felt. The endless vexatious interferences, the unjust and cruel exactions, the petty tyranny, the extortionate avarice, from which there was neither defense nor appeal, would make it always well nigh unbearable. And in addition to this, 
the publicans fell under the rabbinic ban. They, the name, the very name of these customs officials, and I can't pronounce it from the Hebrew, I don't know how it's pronounced, but the root word of the name was oppression. Oppression and injustice. So when they heard the name, custom officials, they would immediately think, here's a plunderer, here's somebody who abuses his office. The Talmud even called these men, uh, charged them with gross partiality because, as you can imagine, people they liked, they would sometimes remit the tax to them. They, would, they wouldn't charge them, they'd give it back. But if you di they didn't like you, they would overcharge you. And so the rabbis thought of them as a criminal race, reckless characters. And then, of course, they became associated with anyone who was wicked, despicable, disreputable by their occupations. I mean, think about it. I, I've never heard of anybody say, I have a good friend in the IRS. We think like that. We associate people with groups like that, do we not? But these were their own people. These were people who were, who were elected among them, and yet they were banned. They were kept at a distance. They were considered unclean by the rabbis because they had unrestricted business dealings with the Gentiles. And then they looked at it, of course, as, well, you're handling filthy lucre all day by collecting those taxes. You're, you have unclean hands, either ceremonially or otherwise. This is how they were treated. And yet, Jesus walks up to Levi, and he makes him the recipient of Jesus' undeserved goodness. The rabbis, the formal Jewish authorities, I think, forgot the two fundamental objectives of Jesus' ministry. And I think that's why we see in Mark, the, the one follows right on the other in Mark chapter 2. What do we read in Mark chapter 2, verse 9? Jesus pronounced that the man's sins were, were forgiven. And he knew the distrust of those listening to him. And he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk. In order that, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he commands him to arise and walk. We see that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And he follows that with something that the rabbis didn't have in their vocabulary. I don't think they had it in their system. Jesus is also welcoming of sinners. He has the authority to forgive sins, but he also has the power and the goodness, the mercy to welcome sinners. He says in verse 17, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, in the midst of the multitude, they're, they're following him. He's been teaching them, and in the midst of them, he gives them this, this beautiful illustration of his own self, who he is, his goodness, his mercy. He, he says to this man, who, who fits all of these things of the custom house official, 
he, he, he's an outcast in the minds of the authorities, and he says to him, follow me. And then we find him, the next episode, we find him at Matthew Levi's house with all of his buddies who were also custom house officials and tax gatherers and, as the scribes call them, all of these sinners. But something in Jesus aroused Levi's conscience. It drew his heart and it made his feet follow him. And I don't know if it's evidence or not. It's evidence that we can see that in Levi's house, he must have told other people and said, come and meet this man who told me to come and follow him. We don't see any hesitation in Levi. He got up immediately. He left his job and he followed Jesus. But it's important that we understand, I think, what to the rabbis, what to the, these scribes of the Pharisees, as they're called, to understand what repentance meant to them in order to understand Jesus' statement, I did not call the righteous but sinners. The word Pharisee and the scribes were a group of Pharisees. I think it's accurate in Mark when he says, um, in verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees, they, they were a, a division of them. Not all the scribes were, but these were. The, the Pharisees were the separated ones. They, that's what they called themselves. And I, I can't help but think that they go back to the Old Testament where, where God says to them, come out from among them and be separate. And yet by being separate, it implies an exclusion of someone else. If you are going to be separate, it means an exclusion. And what was their exclusion that we see and what the historians tell us is they had a contempt for those who were ignorant of the law of Moses. Their idea was that every outward sin was traceable to an inward dereliction or denial of the law. And so they looked at these, these people they, that they called sinners, that they felt were unworthy of their acquaintance, and they called them sinners. They called them ignorant. They called them un misunderstanding or not understanding the law. Now, rabbinism had an unceasing call to repentance. And they extolled the, the merits of repentance. But as I can understand it, it was an external, not an internal call. That it was an external thing. It's a form of works righteousness. That even when they said someone is penitent, they meant that he had entered a door or a gateway, they called it, of repentance. They were, okay, you, that's a good first step. Righteousness to them came by the law, and when righteousness was lost due to sin, only by going back and keeping the law could that righteousness be restored. There is only repentance when one returns to the law. Repentance to them meant returning. They didn't have the New Testament definition of change of mind or change of heart. But it was only a beginning. Repentance resulting in a right relationship 
with God was due to their good deeds. What you do. And so the sinner was not welcomed until, by whatever means, by some means, he ceases to sin and becomes penitent. In Judaism, you were to be penitent, then you would be welcome. But what do we see with Jesus? He welcomes, and then he makes penitent. It is him working. As Edersheim puts it, the one demands, the other imparts life. See, there was a demand for repentance. There was a demand that you would do these right things, that you would act in a certain way, that you would be a certain way. But Jesus imparts life, and that life was to create the right attitude, create the penitence. Levi was a man whose chance of repentance was considered next to impossible. The, the rabbis wouldn't even countenance that this man could be redeemed, that he could be repentant, and yet Jesus called him to follow him. And many more like him, as I said. His house was filled with these who were like him, poor, needy, sinners, all came to Matthew's house. And then the scribes came, and they gathered about. These professional expounders of the law came and they observed that Jesus was sitting with tax gatherers and sinners, and not only sinning, but the idea of eating and drinking. He was having fellowship with them. He was participating in their conversations. He, he was a friend of theirs. And it was natural that the men that Levi invited were there. He told them about what he, he had experienced. And it, it would be natural for them to say, you know, let me come and see too. But why were the scribes there? Why are they present at this occasion? Well, I think they came to undermine his ministry. And I believe by their question that they give not to Jesus, notice that they don't ask Jesus this, why do you eat? He says, why does he eat? with tax gatherers and sinners, I believe they wanted to put doubt in the mind of the, his disciples. So they don't ask Jesus, but they act, I think they act surprised. Why? Why, why is he eating with tax gatherers? I mean, can you imagine anything worse than doing this thing? He needs to stop. He needs to not be seen doing this. This is not a good thing. If, if, if your master really wants to put on you know, the right impressions, that's not a good thing for him to be doing. But again, I think they missed the two fundamental things that we've already discussed, between the differences between themselves and Jesus. They did not take into account Jesus' office as the Messiah in order to show that the Son of Man has the authority on earth as a representative of God Almighty and has that power as God himself to forgive sins. That was his mission. Not only the authority, but the power and the willingness to forgive sins. But I believe, secondly, they forgot 
they spared their own sin. They, they kind of kept that, well, our sin aside, and they despised all the others that they would consider unworthy and unclean. And Jesus overhears them, doesn't he? He overhears them asking the question of his disciples, and he says, it's not those who need a physician, but those who are sick. He's got this logical argument that's going. And he said, okay, let's, let's suppose you, Pharisees, that you are righteous. Let us suppose you are able to stand before God's judgment bar. Let us suppose that you have been acquitted, that you are pronounced just. If that is you, then I did not come for you. It is those who are sick who need a physician. You do not need me if that is you. And I think this dovetails perfectly with our Sunday school lesson this morning. What is righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? There are not two classes of people. Paul tells us that clearly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A physician was needed because there was sickness. And we know that in the scriptures, that sickness is illustrative of sin. And here, what he would say is, I, the Lord, am your healer. I am the one who heals. I am the one who makes whole. I am the one who restores. I am the one who makes repentance. Penitent sinners who come to me. I am the one who calls them. I am the great physician. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It may be interpreted, I did not come to invite the righteous. I came to invite sinners. As if he was inviting them to the great banquet. At the great getting up morning when he would have the feast in his own kingdom. But we know that without a divine call, no one can be saved. Why? <laughs> because we love this world. And we love our sin. And the things in this world have captured us. And we would never turn to God to seek salvation. There are many in the world who seek salvation, but they not, do not seek it of a holy God. They do not seek it in the manner in which Jesus offers it. We would not come to him unless he first called us. Unless he first called us by his grace. J.C. Ryle wrote, He calls with absolute sovereignty, but acts with infinite mercy. See, here's the other thing. He has the authority to forgive sins, but he also welcomes the sinner. And when he calls, he also acts with that infinite mercy. The scribes would have let those that Christ was eating with and that he called to be his own, he would have let them perish. They would not have welcomed them. The, the scribes would have said, you know, we have no mercy for them. They're sinners. They're tax gatherers. They're, they're publicans. And yet Jesus labored for them as the merciful great physician.
The scribes even had a proverb that they didn't understand, I guess. It goes this way. A doctor must go where he is needed, and a physician of the soul must no more be afraid of contagion than a physician of the body. But they were afraid. They were afraid to touch. They were afraid to get close because they were afraid that they would have a contagion. But no sin-sick soul is too far gone for our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is his glory to restore. There is no one like him. But we would ask ourselves the question, do we see sinners next to us as unworthy of the grace of God? Do we, do we sit in church? Do we find out that a co-worker is a Christian and yet we, we go, you know, I don't know if I want to share the Lord's Supper with them. I don't know if I, you know, I know your, their background. I, I kind of know what they were like. Do we shy away from that? Are we disgusted by others knowing, knowing that we're all sinners? Or as one commentator asks, are we ashamed that we were washed in the same fountain with the most impure? If you were washed by the blood of Christ, you are washed, you are made clean. I, I'm reading a book right now about some travelers. They actually came through Greenville and they wrote a book about cities in America. And I was reading about a city they were in in New Mexico and it's near the Mexican border and they have, they have a community pool. But because of the mixture in this little city, they have Mexicans and they have Indians, American Indians, tribes, and they have white folks, and every group in the community pool has a day. The whites swim on the first day, and the Indians the next day, and the Mexicans the third day. And why do the whites insist on that? Because they clean the pool on the fourth day after the, the others have swam so they can swim in a, in a clean pool. Do we treat others like that in, in the body of Christ? Uh, that's what these rabbis were doing. That's why I think it's important to understand who these publicans were. They were among them, and yet they were despised by their own people. I stumbled across this verse in 2 Chronicles 28. The Lord is punishing Judah for the sins of the kings and the people, and so they're, they're at war. And Judah is being, you know, they're being taken off, all their, their goods are being taken off by these, these armies. And, and then a man of Ephraim, one of their own, arises and he goes, I need some of this. I need to get in on this. So he takes 200,000 men, or women and children, and he takes all the, the plunder and he takes it off for himself and his men. And then God sends a prophet named Odad to him. And he asks him this question, surely do you not have transgressions of your own against the Lord your God? Surely do you not have your own sins against the Lord your God that you're plundering your own people? But why, if you know your scriptures, why does Luke in the recounting of this episode of Jesus eating with tax gatherers and sinners, when he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, he adds to repentance. Why doesn't Mark use that phrase? I believe the New American Standard has it right. That phrase is not in the, the Greek text. I have 
come, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Well, I believe that is true. That Jesus did not come to call sinners to repentance. He calls sinners to himself and then he makes them penitent. His call to sinners is higher and better, I think, than repentance. If, if you can hear me without saying that I'm blaspheming. He first calls them to himself, does he not? And to his kingdom and to his righteousness, not to our own. And so he makes us penitent because he makes us humble because we can see what vile sinners we are. And it makes us more joyful. I think it elevates our assurance that he part, the pardon is granted to us not by what I have done because it'll never ever be good enough but by what he has done and him alone. It is a grievous error of the scribes of the Pharisees and the people even in our own day when they think of Jesus as nothing more than a lawgiver, some think of it, oh, he was a good king, a, a teacher, a good example. Or they look to him as the furnisher of a code of sound morality, or that he established spirituality and worship, or they look at his teachings and say, well, he certified this doctrine or that doctrine. But he came as the great physician because man labors under and is painfully afflicted by this moral disease of sin and the plague of death. And he came to save us from our sins. John Calvin wrote, he came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. That's our great physician. That's what he came to do. Remember why he bled. Remember why he died. Remember why he descended into hell and then rose again on the third day. And you will not think it strange that he has called us sinners to be with himself. Unlike the rabbis, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the scribes, and again, even people in our own day, he came to welcome us to a new relationship with God. He came as the friend of sinners. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these, these things are wonderful. They are things of which we ought to look and be amazed and wonder at. And yet, Father, they give us assurance that Christ has the authority to do these things. And not only that, the willingness and the desire and the mercy to do them. And so we ask that we would meditate on these things. We would understand these things. And... Father, that we would understand our responsibility and the privilege of participating in the body of Christ. That you have called us all alike from our sin into a right relationship with you. Father, we thank you and we honor you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.